Well, good morning. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today, as you can tell, is All Saints Sunday. It's this day that we contemplate this profound reality that we call the communion of saints. And if you were listening to that collect, that prayer that we prayed a few minutes ago, we can tell already that this is a very strange, very unique thing we believe because we use words that we don't use very often to pray about it. Words like mystical and ineffable. Somehow, in the communion of saints, we are one with all followers of Jesus, living and dead, across all time and space. It's really something. And so for the kids who are listening, I would invite you to think about the communion of saints, to imagine what that looks like, to imagine who is there, what they are doing, what they look like, what we look like. And I would invite you to draw that and show me and tell me about it after the service. And I know that when I imagine the communion of saints, one of the many people who is part of it is a man named Eugene Peterson. He did the message translation of the Bible. He's a pastor and a theologian. And his writings have made a really big impact on me. He died back in 2018, right before our first All Saints Sunday, so I remember lighting a candle for him on that day. But a few months ago, I finished listening to a new autobiography, not autobiography, a new biography of Eugene Peterson um, by Wynn Collier. And toward the end, as he was writing about Eugene approaching the end of his life, I found myself at first sort of holding back tears and then just openly weeping. I even found myself praying this sort of desperate, like, please don't go. Even though I knew that this man had already died, but there was something about listening to it, remembering it, that just stirred up the sense of loss afresh in me. And All Saints tends to have that effect on us. No matter how old and settled the losses we carry seem, All Saints remembering stirs up the grief and the sense of loss. And it reminds us of the reality of death, of the long shadow that death casts over all of our lives, over the world that we live in. Well, we're going to continue our series in First Timothy today, in that whole chapter 5 that Will read a minute ago. And in this strange way, this chapter also actually points to that ever-present reality of death. Because the chapter deals with how the church treats its widows, and these are women whose lives have been turned upside down by death. They're also women who have been made socially extremely vulnerable by the death of their husbands, but also just by the effects of death in the world. So widows in the church keep the tragedy of death and the fragility of life right in front, in the presence of the community of the living. And so when this chapter talks about how we care for widows, it's about how we take care of those who are living while we are all under the shadow of death. And widows, you probably heard, aren't the only focus of First Timothy 5. It's actually sort of this grab bag of advice about different things. I always laugh at that part about, like, take a little wine with the water for your stomachs. Just just from me to you. 
Um, but most of the advice in this chapter is really self-explanatory, and so I'm not going to preach on every little bit of advice. I'm going to preach on the challenging part, which is the part about widows. And this passage is just another working out of that idea that I keep talking about, that Paul keeps talking about, this idea of godliness. Everything that is flowing out of that mystery of godliness we saw now two chapters ago. And so in verse 4 in this chapter, when Paul instructs widows to learn their religious duty, that whole phrase is actually just one word in Greek, and it's the verb form of the noun godliness. And I think the NIV translation actually helps us a little bit more with this because it translates that godliness verb as putting religion in practice, which I think helps us remember that godliness is putting into practice the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in our lives, living that big ultimate story in all of our little stories. And this idea of godliness also came up in our collect for all saints. We prayed, give us grace to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Godliness is sainthood in action. Godliness is living as saints now in this life. And this is actually how Eugene Peterson saw sainthood. One of the things that came up again and again in that biography that I listened to was Eugene's longing to be a saint. He used to write again and again in his journals where he prayed, I want to be a saint. I want to be a saint. And his biographer described it like this. Eugene asked God to make him a saint, but a saint for him wasn't someone who had achieved a nirvana-like experience, but rather someone who in their very human body was so ravished by the love of Christ that their interior and their exterior were becoming congruent. So whether we call it sainthood or becoming congruent or virtuous and godly living or putting religion into practice, these are all versions of this same idea of the mystery of godliness. And today's text shows us that godliness in how we treat widows. And from the passage, we gather that this church that Paul and Timothy are ministering to is already in the practice of providing financial assistance to widows, which is good. That is what God has always told his people to do. And if we keep in mind that at this time, there were hardly any social safety nets, and so the church was really meeting a need. It was filling a gap. It was caring for people who would otherwise fall through the cracks. But you can also tell that administering this social safety net has gotten complicated in some ways. And so this section about widows almost reads like an internal memo for a very small, very cash-strapped, very new social service nonprofit. And anytime we are reading an internal memo from 2,000 years ago, from a culture and language we don't understand, we know we're going to be missing some of the historical and cultural contexts. And that's clearly the case here. We can't completely understand from the text exactly what is happening with these widows. We don't have all the information we need for a super clear picture. 
But as David told us a few weeks ago in that really challenging passage about women, that when we come to unclear parts of Scripture, we interpret them through the clear parts of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do with this section on widows, because we actually can look elsewhere in 1 Timothy and elsewhere in Paul's letters to make sense of some of what doesn't sound very nice here. So as we get into the passage, Paul is going to divide widows into three groups, and I'm going to name them myself. The first one is problematic widows. The second one is widows with families. And then the third one is what he calls real widows. These are widows who are truly needy. So let's talk about problematic widows first. There are some widows in this church who are still young women, and they seem to be avoiding remarriage, and they seem to even have taken perhaps a vow of celibacy. They also seem to have ample leisure time on their hands, so much that Paul says they are idle, gossips, busybodies, gadding about from house to house. And all of this suggests that these widows are not quite as vulnerable as other widows. They seem to have enough financial independence or security or social standing to not need to rush into marriage, to not need to do some sort of work, to have free time, and to be able to be independent. But if we look at that language of idle gossip and gadding about, it's almost identical to language Paul has used a lot already in 1 Timothy. Because every time he talks about false teachers in this letter, he describes them as people who are gadding about. They promote myths and speculations and meaningless talk and profane and foolish tales. And then if we look at the way these widows are resisting marriage and sex and child-rearing, that's also something that the false teachers in this church are promoting. They are telling people not to get married. And then Paul says that some of these problematic widows have already turned aside and started to follow Satan. And that is language that Paul has already used in 1 Timothy and in some of his other writings to describe people who are following false teachers. So if we look at this bigger context, we can start to deduce that Paul is maybe not being quite as harsh and frankly sexist as he sounds here, when he's talking about these young women, he actually seems to be addressing a very specific contextual problem, which in this church is young widows who are somehow entangled in to this false teaching. And Paul's advice for these problematic widows is that they remarry, that they raise children, that they manage their households. They don't necessarily need the church's charity because they aren't actually vulnerable. What they need is to abandon this way of life that is destructive for them and destructive for the church. Marriage and children and homemaking in this passage is not Paul's prescription for all single women everywhere. It is this very particular instruction for these very particular young widows that seem to be enmeshed in a very particular kind of harmful teaching. So that's problematic widows. The second kind of widows that we see here are widows with family. So like the problematic widows, they don't 
probably need the church's aid in quite the same way, but for a different reason, because these widows have families, and those families ought to be taking care of them, but they seem to be failing to do so. So these might be their adult children, it might be extended relatives, other members of their household. And Paul has the harshest words in the passage for the families of these widows. When he says, whoever does not provide for relatives has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You can't get further from godliness than that. The only other place Paul uses language that is this strong is in 1 Corinthians 5. And in that passage, he's dealing with this really egregious, horrific case of incest in the church. And so if we put these kind of in similar language in Paul's eyes, both of these he sees as this major dysfunction, this major failure of the family to live in the way God intends them. But then if we turn it and look at it from the inverse, we also see Paul here really hallowing the work of caregiving. And I've seen this up close. I've seen my husband put ice chips in his mom's mouth or lift and carry her when she was dying. I've seen some of you in hospitals together caring for people that you love at their bedsides. And I've also heard so many stories of the ways you have cared for people you love, people in your household, whether they are in hospitals, whether they have chronic illnesses or disabilities, whether they're approaching the end of life. So many of you have taken vulnerable people in your household and outside your household into your homes or into your care for seasons, sometimes really long seasons. And so I just want to say what I think Paul would say, which is that you have done a godly, saintly, beautiful thing. You have embodied the clear teaching of this passage, which is that Christians are to care for the vulnerable people in their households. So thank you. Well, the final type of widow is real widows. These are the older women without children, without other family, with no one to support them. They are widows who are truly financially and socially just incredibly vulnerable. They truly need the church's support. But there's something really interesting at work here because even these real widows, they don't seem to just be recipients of charity in this passage. They seem to be enrolled in some sort of special vocation, almost like an order. They seem to have taken a vow of celibacy, the same vow that Paul told these young problematic widows not to take. And they seem to be devoting themselves in some unique way to a special ministry of prayer and service. And in fact, the list of criteria for what makes these women real widows is almost identical to the list of criteria for priests and bishops back in chapter 3. These widows have a ministry and a calling. And so we see that the church isn't just providing for the real material needs of the most vulnerable people in their midst. The church is also hallowing their whole way and stage of life. 
And society at that time would have looked at widows and said, your life is over. You have no children, no family, no fertility, no youth, no husband, nothing to contribute, nothing to produce, nothing to give back. But the church is looking at these women and saying, no, your age, your singleness, your childlessness, your familylessness, your experiences, even your grief, are actually enabling you to demonstrate the kingdom of God in our midst in this unique way. And our other scriptures for today point to that same reality. In our gospel reading, Jesus told the Sadducees how there would be no marriage in the resurrection. And to pull one more time from my buddy Eugene, I love the way the message translates that gospel passage. Listen. Jesus said, marriage is a major preoccupation here, but not there. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor with death. They will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. All ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. I love that. And then that Revelation passage, which we read every year at All Saints, it reveals this crowd of worshipers around God's throne who are clearly people who have known vulnerability and sorrow and death, people who have finally entered the shelter and the care of God, people for whom God will wipe away every tear. And so taking care of these widows is not just an act of charity though it is that, and the church has to do that. It is also a way of recognizing the unique way that these faithful widows point us to the kingdom, the unique way that they live under the long shadow of death, not just their husband's death, but the ongoing curse of death that leaves our bodies so frail and our social safety nets so weak and our lives so fragile. And then it's right there in that fragility that these widows also point us toward the resurrection life that is beyond death. Their lives point beyond the comforts of marriage and family and financial security, beyond the pain of loss, and toward that day when all ecstasies and intimacies will be with God. And in the end, this passage points us to the true godliness of caring for vulnerable people. And it points us to our place in the communion of saints. We're together with all those who have died, those we have cared for, those who have cared for us and our loved ones from all stages and seasons of life. Together, our godliness is pointing a dying world toward the resurrection.